0: Well, tonight, open your Bibles with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 3, and we'll launch off here from a favorite and familiar passage of Scripture in verse 20, where Paul writes, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Lord, tonight we do commit this evening to you. We open our hearts, our lives. We give you access, Lord. We grant you free and full privilege to move and change and rearrange as you see fit and to mold us into the very image of Jesus Christ. Amen. We all underestimate God. Each of us. That is not surprising. It's part of the human condition. It goes way back, but we bring it way forward to tonight. We have a shrunken view very often of God. We serve an incredible shrinking God. It's said that some people begin their Christian walk with a great God who can do anything. And then as they get a grasp on Christian lifestyle and the experience of the church, that God begins to shrink. And they become larger and their God becomes smaller. But this problem does go way back. uh, When God said, if you eat of this tree, you will surely die, it was not an empty promise. And um, Adam and Eve didn't take him seriously. But he, really, the problem of underestimating God goes back even further than that, doesn't it, if you think about it? God is underestimated historically by his enemies. Satan tried to lead a mutiny in heaven. Now, what was he thinking? Anytime you look at your list of enemies and you see God with a big G on it, you are in trouble. And that's what Satan did, and that's where he's at today, and that's why he has a destiny that he has. He was doomed, in deep trouble. So, although as far as we know, Satan is the original enemy of God, and he misjudged God so very long ago, but we do so tonight. And also there are those that Satan deceives, And they make the same mistake today that Satan and the demons made in heaven when they rebelled. See, the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let every man be a liar, and God will be true. What he says does and will come to pass. But yet, many people take his promises lightly, if at all. Much of what God says to man is hopeful, gracious, forgiving, liberating, and redemptive. However, there is a part of God's message to man that is just the opposite. Because those who oppose God, those who dramatically undervalue his promises, are facing a certain, final, irrevocable judgment. Again, most of God's word is optimistic, it's redemptive, but um, words are insufficient vessels to hold the truth about hell and eternal separation from God. And yet that is certainly just as true as the thrilling promises we share of eternal life. So underestimating the reality of God's promise to banish unbelievers from his presence is a huge mistake. So, it's not only the enemies of God that underestimate Him, who drastically undervalue His Word. His friends do also. And, and that is a tragedy as well. We under, underestimate God's greatness. We underestimate His grace, His goodness. We underestimate the gifts that He gives to men. Now, we've just passed through the gift giving season, the event that really fuels the economy of the engine of American uh, capitalism. That's Christmas. Because we all give gifts. But if you think about the institution or the the tradition of of giving gifts, it's interesting. Outside of Christmas and, and birthdays, to whom do you give gifts? To people you care about, for the most part. That should be the motive of our heart. So It should tell us something about God's true nature when we consider the fact that God gives gifts to men. It's not because he's putting up with you grudgingly. It's not because he has to tolerate you because that's what the Bible says. It's because he cares passionately about you, and thus he gives gifts to men. It should help us to place him in the proper perspective of his compassionate love for us. And God... God gives us these gifts that we might begin to express the fullness of what he wants for you. Because while you may underestimate God, he doesn't underestimate you. Do you realize every transaction that he has with you, every communication, every shred of relationship, every fiber of fellowship he has with you is geared towards one thing, the very best for you. Because it's a cliche, but... God knows. So as he guides you down the path of life, as he blocks this door and he closes that alleyway and he prevents you from going on this turn and he stops you here and there, it's never frivolous. It's never because he just feels like it. It's because he has a plan and God knows. He's trying to move you to the very best for you. And when you oppose that, you are frustrating You are opposing your own self. And so uh, we begin to miss, then, the superlatives in our text tonight. Look with me at verse 19, just above what we read. That is that we are to know, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be able, that you may be able to be filled with all the fullness of God. That is his goal for you. That is his target. But you, you may be created and stretched enough to be filled with the fullness of God as much as is possible in your current condition. Let me ask you a very basic question as we start tonight. Are you cooperating with that process? Are, are you moving in God's direction, or do you have your heels dug in and your teeth gritted? Are you striving spiritually? Or is it adequate to say and to observe of our lives that your yoke is easy, your burden is light, that you've cast your cares upon him, or are you barely getting by? Because God wants you to have what Jesus called the abundant life, a fruitful life, the one hundredfold life. that's God's new math, that He wants you to be abundant, rivers overflowing. And this isn't just flowery text and poetic verbiage from the Bible. This is what God wants for his children, and not just for some special elect few. This is accessible to each and every believer. So we want to know the love of Christ. We want it to fill us. But unfortunately, sometimes we settle for what we'll call a second-hand God, a, a thrift, so, thrift store God. And um, that's not uncommon in, the, in human history. We were in Belize a few weeks ago. Took a trip to the Mayan ruins, and they're all over Mexico and Central America. It's fascinating. Uh, some of them have up to three thousand different buildings, and they have they have pyramids. And our guide was explaining what what the economy of their belief system was. It's just it's it's incredible. The the Mayan god. Uh, hierarchy, pantheon of gods, had 160 different deities, jaguar gods and sun gods and, and all the rest. And when, of course, the archaeologists first began to explore Central America in the early part of the this, this, this century, they discovered the Mayans and, and the various other kinds of civilizations, and they were very respectful of them. thought they were very advanced their calendars, their number systems, their their writings and all the rest, and they really elevated them the Mayans as being a peaceful, advanced civilization. But a problem happened when they began to interpret the hieroglyphics and they began to dig around some of the, the tells, and they began to find a lot of skeletons there on the base of the pyramids. And, and the, the observation of them being a peace-loving people that achieved this utopian kind of civilization began to kind of crumble. And the archaeologists had to take a about face because they found blood stains all over the pyramids. And as they read the hieroglyphics around the various um, buildings, they found that they were not so peace loving, not so utopian. They were fierce. They were warlike. They were intensely superstitious, and they empowered their priests with the ability to sacrifice thousands and. Tens of thousands of people. In fact, the Mayan theory was that the only way you could be assured of avoiding the, I think it's 13 levels of hell and working your way up to nine levels of heaven was either die as a a warrior or as a sacrifice. And so the Mayans dutifully lined up by, by the thousands to be sacrificed. Now this is not so absurd. Look over at the Muslim religion today. It would teach us basically the very same thing. If the only way to be certain in the Quran that you'll be accepted by Allah is to die as a martyr or in holy jihad. And thus, you have the homicide bombers willingly going to their graves for the sake of pleasing their God. So this kind of false deception that emanates only from the the, the very pit of hell can be found in the, only the Mayan religion but the Incas of Ecuador and Peru, uh, the Aztecs of Mexico, uh, throughout various parts of the Egypt and Mesopotamian uh, civilizations, and the Babylonian philosophy of deities. And this misunderstanding of God is not a minor thing. It really runs through all the great civilizations. You look at the Romans and the Greeks and the Egyptians, and right down the road, people underestimating and, and Dramatically perverting who God is, we have to be careful we don 't let even a, a tinge of that infiltrate into our thinking. We need a crystal clear view of who God is, what He said, and what He intends for his people. So you know we have a big football game coming up in our civilization this sunday well that 's nothing compared to the Mayans. They had their ball courts there by the uh, the pyramids, about one hundred and sixty Uh, feet long. It was much kind of like a a soccer, uh, rugby match with one difference. If you lost, your team was sacrificed. So no pep talks were needed. These guys guys were motivated to play ball. Incredibly, uh, just as a footnote, on one day when a new king was installed there in uh, one of the um, Mayan capitals, 80,000 people were sacrificed in the course of four days, day and night, uh, just to sacrifice and to satisfy their version, their vision of who God was. Tragic and unnecessary. So we underestimate God when we devalue his true nature. Uh, We underestimate him when we ignore his word and sleep through his sermons and aren't willing to hear from him. Ford and Volvo right now are going through some research and development trying to find ways to wake up sleeping drivers. They have found that um, 150,000 accidents and some 1,500 people die each year because people fall asleep at the wheel. There are 50,000 big tractor-trailer accidents each year, and no one really knows how many of those are caused by sleeping drivers. And It's not as big a problem as drunk driving, but it's, it's a huge problem because our lifestyles are getting busier, our sleep time is getting less, and it's becoming a significant issue. So they're trying to find a way of the car realizing you're deviating off the track, and either the steering wheel will shake or a a gentle voice will come on. I would say, you know, put about a 110 volt through the seat of the driver (laughs) and a voice that says, wake up, stupid. And that might work. But they had one USA Today reporter go through. They've built kind of virtual reality rides to see what happens when you are sleep-deprived, and they had had her stay awake for 24 hours and then go through this this driving uh, simulation. And they found that a person who is awake for 24 hours has the same kind of reflexes and reaction time as someone who is legally intoxicated. And they also found that a person can become so tired, they can literally be uh, asleep with their eyes wide open. Now, some of us have mastered that in the classroom (laughs) and elsewhere. And I'm afraid that our our, our churches uh, can do that. These should be exciting times for the Christian church. Uh, These should be high, high times of prophetic intrigue. These should be times when we are grasping the opportunity to seize the moment. And yet George Barna undertook a research project in the month of December of last year. And and he called during the business day 3,400 churches in America in the middle of the day. And 55% of the time he did not reach a human being. Now, are we awake to the needs of our community? Are we open to people who need help and love and and charity and need questions answered? You call the church, you can't even find a person. Uh, the, the Judgment begins at the house of God. We need to be alert. We need to be awake. And, and the Bible is clear about that, saying, wake up those of you who slumber. Don't just pass the time away. The, the days are evil. Redeem the time. Don't waste it. Don't waste the privilege and opportunity that you have been given. If we take seriously our place in our communities, listen, if we um, let this city know that we care, about the salvation of its families. If we tell Albuquerque we are concerned about your rebellious children, that we we have a book and we have a God who has solutions, not instantaneous, not overnight, but practical steps to healthy family living. If we tell New Mexico that we care about their short-term and long-term futures, um, there is nothing that can't happen. If we unleash God's word the last time I was in this pulpit was the weekend of December 21st. It was an emotional weekend here at Calvary, and we um, announced Skip's departure, and we spent a lot of time that weekend looking back and talking about people who had been here, people like Bill, people like uh, Gino and, and Terry Gray and Robert Farrell have gone off to build megachurches and have served here and were loved and, uh, and left here. And we looked in the rearview mirror all that weekend and in the past month. It's been an interesting time. But we observe then, and I say now, the time will come to get our eyes off the rearview mirror. And there's been a lot of talk and speculation over the years. What will happen when there's a change in leadership at Calvary? I don't know what will happen as far as people go, but I know what God's going to do. God's going to build his church, and God's going to fulfill the Great Commission. And the gospel will go forth uh, to the very ends of the earth, and then the end will come. So, we aren't responsible for what's going to happen to other people. Uh, what's in our pasture? And if, if we are dedicated to telling this community about the love of God, um, the f- best days of Calvary of Albuquerque do not lie in the past, they lie in the future. Let me just say that, you know, your senior pastor here, Pete Nelson, did serve here as youth pastor. That was 10 years ago. And he was he was a mature, aggressive uh, servant at that time. In the intervening ten years, I want you to know he's been seasoned. He's traveled all over the world, been in hundreds of churches, and and been mentored by some excellent teachers, uh, some of the, the finest, most balanced, dedicated Bible teachers around. And that he, there's a seasoning there, there's a vision there, there's a firmness of of depth and a grasp of of the moment. And one of the first things Pete did was to authorize that we're going to expand Easter morning to a larger event and, and try to attract more of our community. And then he also, also approved a, a three-day crusade at Isotope Stadium next fall that you'll be hearing more about. Well, the best days are ahead. I can't wait, and we need to find our place in it. And I I know. I know there are those here tonight and those who are uh, other parts of the body here at Calvary who have been extremely well-nourished in God's Word, who, who have been taught and fed and, and understand the principles and have, have sat through many, many Bible studies and really have absorbed God's Word. And now your time has come. And the time for, for feeding and eating and is, is um, not past, but has been accomplished. Now the time comes for leading and and for warning, and for watching out for God's people. And I am certain there are, in a body of this size, there may be hundreds, there may be a a thousand people God is going to dramatically challenge to put into practice what they've learned in in the past years here, and uh, it should be exciting times. Well, what happens when we do underestimate God is that we have to overestimate something else, and typically that's us. When we it's kind of a seesaw approach. We underestimate God, we have to elevate something else, normally that is mankind. We begin to focus more on man, depend more on man's devices, expect more out of men. And subsequently, listen, be more disappointed because men will always let you down. So if you find yourself with an emotional vacuum in your life, perhaps it's been because you've been expecting too much of a human and too little from God. And that equation needs to change if you're going to find a spiritual and emotional equilibrium as a mature Christian. When we shrink God, it affects everything. Now, how does it feel when you shrink things at home in your washer and dryer? You try to remember, I wasn't going to wash that. I was going to keep it just as a medium forever. And then you try to, it just doesn't fit anymore. It just changes your whole day. And so the same thing happens. Once you shrink God in your life, it changes everything. Your whole day doesn't begin to work. Uh, so you see, uh, you have to ask yourself the question, how do you envision God? Is he the great restrictor or is he the great liberator to you? Uh, do you have a full and an even a balanced view of God? Here's a good question. You know, many times we kind of land and we, we become either Old Testament or New Testament believers. We kind of have these favorite parts of the Bible, and we always kind of just gravitate there. And there are churches like that. There are preachers like that. It doesn't matter where they begin teaching the Bible. They can begin in Revelation. They always end up in the law. Just They just kind of drift back there. There are those that can begin in Proverbs, and they always end up in prophecy. You see, we need to be balanced. We need to, to serve a God of both Mount Sinai and, end the Sermon on the Mount, and not either-or. We need a full, complete uh, view of God. So if we were to ask Jesus what God is like, I'm certain his first two words would be, my Father, and then he'd tell you. And that says a great deal, does it not? That's the first thing we need to know about God. He is a Father. And he has a father's concern and a father's ability to provide and a father's responsibility for his children and a father's interest in their affairs. And you need to keep that in mind about God as you understand him. Now, to illustrate two men, one who radically underestimated God and one who had a more balanced view and a proper view of him, I'm going to ask you to leave our text and flip over quickly with me to the book of Second Chronicles. That would be in the Old Testament. Let's go to chapter 32. And I want to just draw a comparison with you, a, a real vivid illustration of two men. And I just picked them because I like their name. Sennacherib and Hezekiah. And I, just, I do like their names, but they make a, a great point. Sennacherib was the Assyrian king who came into Israel to bring it into captivity. And... Just to give you an overview of the situation, let's look at at chapter 32, verse 1. Sennacherib, uh, the king of Assyria, came and entered Judah, and he encamped against the fortified cities, uh, thinking to win them over to himself. This king, this wicked king, and you recognize Assyria from our our studies in in, in Jonah. The capital was Nineveh. They were a brutal and a violent and a uh, militant people. And when they were encamped outside your door, it was not good news because they were not the welcome wagon. And, and, they, and they, were, they were there for one thing, and that was to, to brutalize the people of Israel. And they had accomplished that through much of the land. But when they came to Jerusalem, they came to King Hezekiah, one of the few good kings of Judah. And King Hezekiah had enacted many reforms had brought down the high places and obliterated much of the idolatry. And um, he was a good king. And we see that he led his people. Look down at verse 8 of chapter 32, and he had a proper perspective. And I want you to get this. Look at verse 8. With him, with Sennacherim, is the arm of the flesh. But with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. One man looking and depending upon the arm of the flesh. The other man seeing with spiritual eyes what God could do. And so, Sennacherib continued, and he threatened, and he mocked, and he scorned, and uh, the people were strengthened by Hezekiah. And then Sennacherib, in verse 10, said this, and mark it well. He said, In what do you trust that you remain under siege in Jerusalem? He's trying to demoralize the people of Israel, and the key word here is, who do you trust? He says... The Lord our God, he now begins to mock Hezekiah, will deliver us from the hand of the king of Assyria. Has not the same Hezekiah taken away his high places, his altars, and commanded Judah and Jerusalem, saying, You shall worship before one altar and burn incense on it alone? So he begins to mock Hezekiah's reforms and to try to bring the people of Jerusalem to surrender and to forfeit the opportunity to follow Hezekiah. And then I want you to notice in verse 13, the small g in verse 13. He says, Do you not know what I and my fathers have done to all the people of the other lands? Were the gods of the nations of those lands in any way able to deliver their lands out of my hand? And that brings us to the point that we are not to be like other people. The rest of the world does lie in darkness And in bondage tonight. The rest of the world doesn't trust a god with a big G. Well, they all have their gods, no doubt about it. We are a a significantly religious people. But it's a small G. And that's the point Sennacherib is making here. What makes you so different? Why do you think you'll be delivered? What right do you think you won't be victimized like everybody else? And the answer is coming, so stay with us here. Who was there among all the small g gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people from my hand? That your God, large g, should be able to deliver you from my hand. And that's all the difference in the world. Sennacherib has his finger on the pulse and doesn't even recognize the truth, the vein of truth that he has found. So here's a man with, with all the military might, all the power, all the ability in the world, and he is not seeing a true view of God, and is going to condemn him uh, to his his final fate. Second part of, of verse fifteen: Do not let Hezekiah deceive you or persuade you. How much less will your God deliver you from my hand? The challenge goes out tonight: To whom do you trust your fate? To what God do you serve? Sennacherib went further to even write letters threatening Hezekiah, promising what he would do. You can only imagine what was in that letter. Because the Assyrians, as you probably know, when they took over a people, uh, did some incredibly painful things to them. And those letters probably contained it. But Hezekiah, I want to now transfer your attention to him, did the right thing. He took those letters and spread them before the Lord and read them and said, look what this guy is saying about me, about you, and about your people. Hezekiah had the proper perspective of who he could trust. Do you um, find yourself tonight in difficult times? Have you come to a place in your life where you are bankrupt of your own ability? You can't be in as extreme a case as Hezekiah with pagans, Knocking on your door and threatening to do awful things to you and and, and your loved ones. But you may feel it's that emotionally extreme in your life. You may have circumstances and events. You may be crossways with people you care deeply for. And the question is, to whom are you going to reach out to? Who are you going to trust to solve that problem? Will it be the arm of the flesh or the spirit of the Lord? Now, We all know the arm of the flesh is tempting, because it's visible, it's tangible, you can touch it. On the other hand, the Spirit of God is sometimes elusive, invisible, but much more trustworthy, although not touchable. Only you can answer that question. We would encourage you to follow the, the path, the habit of Hezekiah, to take your problems before the Lord and spread them out before him and say, here's the deal. Here's where we are at, because we're in this together. And you can trust God to meet your need. And as we're going to see here, God can intrude as he sees fit at any level at any time. And verse 19 says that they had spoken against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the whole earth. And verse 20, now because of this, King Hezekiah and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amoz, prayed and cried out to heaven. Now, a few years ago, a book came out called What If? It's by secular historians, a series of essays about what would happen at pivotal times in history if the outcome had been different. And surprisingly, they picked this incident because it is collaborated by a great deal of of extra-biblical history as a fact as one of the major turning points in the history of mankind. Because had Sennacherib been successful in overcoming and taking Jerusalem into captivity at this time, the entire history of, of the world would have been dramatically altered. And even these secular historians pick this time as a key transitional point. Because right here, God elected To send angels, as you'll see in in verse 21, really an angel who cut down every mighty man. And 185,000 Assyrian warriors were slain in a single night. Now, the historians say it was famine or lightning bugs or something else that caused the Assyrians to flee. But they missed the point. But they observed the fact that something changed and it was dramatic and it was intrusive and it was the Lord. And as we see that, um, well, rabbinical tradition says that Sennacherib had taken an oath, and this is extra biblical, that if he was successful in capturing Hezekiah, because he'd been a a thorn in his, his side for some time, that he would go back to Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, and sacrifice his sons on a plank taken from Noah's Ark that he had found during his journeys. We don't know if that part is true, but we do know that the sons probably heard about it because it says right here, look at the rest of verse 21. So he returned shamefaced to his own land, and when he went into the temple, his own offspring struck him down and killed him. So before he had a chance to fulfill his vow, they took his life. And that's what happened to Sennacherib. And that's what happened, those may be extreme, extreme to anyone who would trust in the arm of the flesh anyone who would reject the spirit of the Lord. It's a very serious, serious thing. And thus the Lord, verse 22, saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. Now, Hezekiah wasn't perfect, but he had a proper view of God in this instance. At different times, he faltered in his faith. He tried to bribe the Assyrians. He let the Babylonians into Jerusalem. But in this instance, he had a picture window looking out on God. Unfortunately, some of us can put God under glass and we visit him periodically. That's why sometimes we come to churches to to visit God. And in some of the more ecclesiastical churches, they literally have God under glass. They have things you have to kiss and things you have to bow down to, and God's all protected in there. That's not where he lives. That's not how he operates. We need to, if we're going to be free, we have to allow God the freedom to change us. Um, Jesus is always in the business of moving us from liberty to liberty. He wants to release us into maturity. But as long as we're in the spiritual playpen, can't really trust us. We see that principle with our children. We want them to grow up and and assume responsibility and and be mature citizens and take responsibility for their life. But we can't until they're ready and they prove themselves able. Same thing is true spiritually. God wants to bring you from glory to glory. He doesn't want to keep you restricted. He wants to set you free. God's all about freedom. God's about liberating you and not, not allowing you to be in bondage. So you have to realize that if if your life is constrained, if your life is grinding gears continually, that's a consistent state of affairs for you, you need to take a long pause and consider, what is your view of God? What are you allowing your relationship with him to be like? Have you allowed legalism to creep in? Have you... Set up this subtle list of do's and don'ts and wills and won'ts that begins to govern and guide your spiritual life. And that is such a subtle temptation, but a deceptive one. Are you serving somebody else's God? Have you inherited your God from a parent or from a grandparent? And you've taken their word for what God is like, allowed your God to be a—you're really a stepchild. And that's not how it's supposed to be. You have to have your own personal God. Every altar call you've probably ever heard, you hear the terms, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, do you have one? Do you have one? Or are you depending on somebody up here? Or somebody out there to to lead you, to tell you what God is like? No, it is one-on-one. It's a unique facet of Christian beliefs. We have a personal relationship with God. We don't depend on a priest or a, or a pastor, or a pope. We have a personal relationship with him. And don't, again, do not underestimate God's great care and concern for you. He wants to set you free. Some of the most melancholy words that I can imagine are these four. What could have been? We don't want that to be our eulogy. Oh, what could have been? If only I had. I wish I would have known. Oh, if I knew then what I know now, what could have been? Don't be a victim of that. God's grace can change it to what still can be, what you're capable of, what He wants to make you. Now, Some of us have made real messes of our lives at different points in time. I mean really, really expert. But nonetheless, though your sins be as scarlet, he will make them as white as snow. Don't underestimate the grace of God to forgive you, to cleanse you, to restore you. Don't allow condemnation to overshadow your life. Allow yourself tonight to be set free. Now, there's restoration. There's repentance. There may even be restitution. But there is a loving, forgiving, freeing God who doesn't want us bound by anything but his love. You know, it's funny. We spend time reading the Bible and listening to Bible studies and hearing all kinds of spiritual input. I'm I'm, I'm sure you do, too. And you hear something... You may hear it a dozen times. And then God will put you in a certain place, in your heart, in a certain position where it just makes sense. And you go, wow, like the first time you ever heard that. And it happened to me recently. as was having just a little difficult day, a little bit of an irregular day, and driving down the road. And, and the, some guy came on the radio and goes, are you having a difficult day? I go, yes. He says, well, you have choices. You have choices. He said you can whine about it. That seems a reasonable alternative at this time. Just kind of complain. It's always like this. It always happens to me. Push the emotional button, you know. You just whine about it. Just cry. Or you can complain. They're always like that. They're always like that, aren't they? People always let you down. You can just complain and play the blame game. Blame others for your condition." Not my fault. Oh, this. Those are two of your choices. Or you can withdraw. You can become an island, a rock. They're not going to bother me. They're not going to get to me. I am a rock. And you kind of isolate yourself. That's a choice, too. Opportunity you have. Not just kind of become, put the walls up. All right. No one's going to touch me. He says, those are three of your choices. Or, he says, you can worship. Ha, I don't. Feel like (laughs) worshiping. Now, for some of you, this is no revelation, but for me, it's like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've read the book of Job. I've taught the book of Job. And it says, Job from the ashes worshipped. And that makes sense. At the time you least feel like it is the time you most need it. And that's when you have to reject the arm of the flesh to solve that problem short term and embrace fully the Spirit and worship. And as you begin to do that, the, the anointing of God can flow and will flow into your life. It doesn't have to be a huge emotional epiphany of a, of a moment where the heavens break, break loose for you. But I believe as we begin to say well, Praise the Lord. It was hard to do. Praise the Lord. Then you gotta just kinda of force it out. You you can allow God to break up that crusty shell that we install and you know, allow it to harden in our heart. Do you get that? Let the worship flow at the time that, that you, you need it most. Well, how do we reverse the process? If you sit here tonight, with a shrunken God, if you've underestimated who God is and what he wants for you in 2004, how do you begin to change that besides just taking more notes and shaking your head yes? Well, you know, we spend a lot of time doing heavy lifting here spiritually. A lot of red meat and iron and a lot of spiritual, the equivalent of weight lifting goes on in this room and in, in different places we receive spiritual Bible studies. But, I get to the gym once in a while, and I've learned some principles, and you can't spend your whole time in the weight room. I went to a few months ago a Pilates class, which was quite an experience. And they begin to want you to do stuff with your body that isn't normal, you know. And I'm seeing these people. They're all wearing leotards, first of all. That was, But... But they begin like, twisting and, and moving, and, and I was doing it, I was just completely inflexible. And I ended up at a sports therapist, um, <laughs> not for that problem, but for something else. And, and they said, now I'm going to take your knee and bend it. And I said, my knee doesn't bend that way. I said, my other knee does, this one just doesn't move. I said, no, just wait, just relax, you know. and allow, allow me to stretch your muscles. And, he had the name for the muscle, and he began to do this motion. And all of a sudden, I was like a Hindu pretzel. It was like, man. And that's what some of us need spiritually. We think, you know, I, I just don't do that. I just don't worship that way. And we're like this. My, my body doesn't go like that. My spirit doesn't do that. And we need to Stretch. Allow God to stretch us and make us more flexible. Put us in a different position spiritually. Uh, Physiologists tell us to focus on one muscle group at a time. So, um, for a lesson tonight, you're not going to get off easy, just uh, with an outline. Um, I want you to pick a spiritual muscle group. An area of your life that you want to release to God. To allow Him to have freedom with. I really think God works in pieces in our life. He doesn't just work in our life. He works in areas. Uh, He builds foundations, piece by piece, precept upon precept. Uh, Here a little, there a little, building a foundation, and gradually we see revealed, wow, a mansion. And I want you to pick a, a spiritual group of your life tonight. And release it to him, not in a highly emotional way, a very practical way. I want you to give it to him. You know, we're going to uh, have some time of worship here in a while, and we talked about being asleep at the wheel earlier. It's possible to be asleep at the worship, and just kind of go through the motions, and just kind of put up with worship till we get to the Bible study. And that's not what it's about. That. Elevating God, experiencing his glory, uh, reflecting that truth through your worship is a very important part of the Christian experience. And if you're missing it, it could be responsible for dry areas, for even a spiritual drought in our lives. If it's all been word, 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 and not worship and and spirit in a balanced dynamic, it's possible to kind of dry up and not have those rivers of living water flowing through your life that God would intend. In fact, the Bible says not just flowing, but overflowing. The, the, the tense is, is, is very superlative. Much living water flowing through our life, kind of an overabundance is what we want to see. Well, a couple of, of parting thoughts. They say that Michelangelo only signed one work of art his entire career. Now, he was responsible for some beautiful things. He was a genius. Sistine Chapel, the statue of David. But the only work of art that he ever signed was the piata, uh, the statue of Mary, Mary and Jesus. We don't know why. We can only assume and observe. But that was what he chose as the one thing to autograph of all the works of art that he created. Now, God has created some spectacular works of art in the universe, in the gallery of of his artistic splendor, incredible. The Bible says, though, that the heavens, marvelous as they are, only declare the glory of God. You carry the glory of God. Only mankind did God choose to impose his image upon You are the one he signed. You are the work that he autographed. And that should say a great deal to us, should speak to us about how precious you are to him. Though the whole world may reject you, your very family might cut you off. You might lose your job. You might be in in desperate financial straits tonight. But God loves you. God cares deeply for you. And if you'll put aside your dependence upon the arm of the flesh, fully and thoroughly grasp his spirit, you'll know the working of God. This is not my promise. This is what the word of God and the word of the Lord will stand forever. Well, there are three things God will never forget about you. Don't underestimate that day when you stand before him. He'll never forget the works you did in his name. He'll never forget the gifts you gave to his poor. And he'll never lose sight of what you did for the gospel. Don't think for a moment any little thing you did has been overlooked by heaven. We've all just received in the mail various tax statements, W-2 forms, 1099s, offering statements, tax deductions, and all that. And don't think for one second that God hasn't recorded every single prayer, any single sacrifice, any solitary act that you've done in his name in 2003. if, If the IRS can record your charitable giving, trust me. God can keep a record of anything you've done transparently and invisibly for Him. And in that day, in that day, you'll never regret what you've given. You'll never regret what you've sacrificed. You'll never regret you've taken second place and put somebody before yourself and become a true, humble servant of God. And so that's two thousand three. That's in that's in the bag, that's in the in the books. What about 2004? What are you going to covenant together to do? These are exciting times for the church. And if we agree together, nothing will be withheld from us to accomplish in God's kingdom in his timing, according to the leading of his spirit. What about 2004 for you? Will it be just another year? Or will you pick up the challenge to get up, to grow up, and to move on? to do things productively for God's kingdom, investing wisely because in that day you'll receive your reward. There's no doubt about that. If it's just going to be another year, you're going to be a spectator, that's tragic. But it can be a year of change, a pivotal time for you, a time of transition from adolescence to maturity in the Christian walk, whatever your chronological age might be. This can be the year when you begin to inherit the promises and allow God to do what He sought to do from the foundations of the earth. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we submit a short list to you, a short list of worries, because they all center around us. Our concerns, our anxieties, our fears what we're going to do about tomorrow or next week or next month. And it can become oppressive. But we serve a great God, not a shrinking one. And tonight we look up and we see, Lord, that you are capable. You are gracious. And you are powerful. There's nothing that is before us that you can't handle, Lord, and we submit it to you. We just come before you Transparently, Lord, and nakedly, and and say that we need you. We need your forgiveness. We need your grace. We need your greatness in our life. Lord, we are so thankful for your goodness, so appreciative, Lord, of your promises. Help us not to come short of them. In Jesus' name, amen.